0: Welcome to Lippon Apocalypse, episode 11, Grass Will Not Grow on the Path Between Us. I'm Brandon Seal. Quote, Tears rained down the old man's face while sobs fairly shook his frame. That's how Noah Smithwick described Lepon Captain Flacco the Elder's reaction to the news of his son's death. His son, Flacco the Younger, had burned down in the Lepon idiom, though that makes it sound like he died of natural causes or something. He most definitely had not. He had been sent on January 1st, 1843 to drive a Texian army's captured horse herd from Laredo back to San Antonio. His body was found along the Medina River a week later, around the same time that his horses showed up in Seguin, along with his saddle blankets and his personal remuda Realizing what had happened, and worried about the Lipan reaction to the murder of the quote, flower of their tribe, end quote, Texas officials went into spin mode. Publicly, they blamed Mexican bandits for Flacco's murder. And or other Indians, they, they never quite got the story straight. But in private, Texas officials knew that Flacco had been murdered by a pair of anglo Texians. They even knew their names, Tom Thurman and James B. Rivas. No charges were ever brought, however. It was, in Smithwick's words, quote, one of the most pathetic incidents in the history of Texas, end quote. Describing his response to Flacco the Elder's reaction, Smithwick could only write, I felt how useless words were in such a crisis. I could only express my sympathy by the tears that welled up to my own eyes. And Smithwick offered the Elder Flacco a poem. It was no substitute for the justice that Flacco the Younger would never receive, but it had been written by President Sam Houston himself, and well, frankly, it's poignant. It's long, but here it is in a slightly abridged form. Quote, My heart is sad. A dark cloud rests upon your nation. Grief has sounded in your camp. The voice of Flacco is silent. His words are not heard in council. The chief is no more. His life has fled to the great spirit. His eyes are closed. His heart no longer leaps at the sight of the buffalo. The voices of your camp are no longer heard to cry. Flacco has returned from the chase. Flacco was a friend to his white brothers. They will not forget him. They will remember the red warrior. His father will not be forgotten. We will be kind to the Lipans. Grass will not grow on the path between us. Signed, thy brother, Sam Houston. End quote. I feel like here's where I'm supposed to talk about the Lipan's beliefs in the afterlife, uh, about the great spirit, or that Flacco was now in the happy place down in the southern world with streams and shady cottonwoods and with all of his dead ancestors. But that for me would make this scene seem less real and fall in a long tradition of trying to accentuate how different Native Americans were as a subconscious way of distancing ourselves from the terrible violence perpetrated against them. And in truth, Flacco the Elder's response was much more relatable. He accepted Houston's poem graciously through his sobs. He told Noah Smithwick that he no longer wanted to be called Flacco, that even hearing his own name in the context of his son was too painful. And then he threw it all back in Smithwick's face, saying, It has always been our custom to destroy everything belonging to the dead. But my son was the white man's friend and I want to do with his things as white men do, End quote. He gifted Smithwick one of his son's finest horses. He sent two of his son's horses to the commander of the Texian army, and he sent President Houston a Mustang that Flacco had broken and trained himself. It was a gift far more poignant than a poem, because it was also an accusation. These horses would be living reminders to Houston, Smithwick, and to the army commander of the emptiness of their promises, of the hollowness of their kindness to the Lipanes. And then, like the Uvalde school district deciding to raise Rob Elementary, the Lipan captain formerly known as Flacco and his people destroyed the rest of the younger Flacco's belongings, struck their camp, and abandoned the site forever. Lipanes had been a fixture of life in Texas for as long as European settlers had been writing about it. As the great alliance makers of the plains, and as a people who had more than a century before defined themselves by a decision to live in symbiosis with and among settler societies, we see them singing in the streets of Laredo in 1828, living close enough to Refugio to save its ass in the Mexican invasion of 1842, and entangled in and around San Antonio for centuries before and after this. For example, at a community on Cibolo Creek where they were attending elementary schools with German immigrants, their fields of elote, or corn, which gave the name to Helotis on San Antonio's northwest side, in the old mission communities that still governed themselves a bit apart from the city of San Antonio proper, and even in the old so called Indian town that sat at the junction of Apache and Alison Creek on San Antonio's near west side. But eighteen forty three was a turning point. First, obviously, there was the murder of Flaco the Younger. But also, the great captain Cuelgas de Castro had died the previous summer, apparently of natural causes, but it marked a passing of the baton to his sons, Juan and Ramón Castro. Then, as if to pile on their misfortunes, a particularly devastating bout of smallpox swept through Lipon communities that year, killing perhaps a fifth of Lipon men. And amidst all of this loss, Captain Flaco the Elder and Juan and Ramon Castro, could feel Anglo-Texians' attitudes changing all around them as well. The vast majority of the 70,000 non-Indians living in Texas by 1843 were newcomers, with no context for the decades-long Tejano-Anglo-Lipan alliance, and with a strong discomfort at seeing any Indians in their midst. In the words of Sam Houston, settlers became, quote, victims to their own indiscretion and temerity. You may not be surprised to learn that the social media of the day, newspapers, never hesitated to circulate the wildest and most unsubstantiated rumors, in particular, rumors of Apache violence. A contemporary Texas ranger, and certainly no lover of Indians, reviewed the records from 1823 to 1875 to count the number of deaths actually attributable to Indian violence. His final tally was approximately 400 Anglo Texians and enslaved people killed over the course of the entire 52-year period, two-thirds of them by Comanches. By 1849 alone, however, Texas newspapers reported 150 to 200 civilians having been scalped along the frontier that year. All of them, it seems, entirely false. Working against the Lipanes was that they were wealthy and they were closer by than any other Indians. in fact, an entire industry had sprung up of Anglo bandits dressing up as Indians, going on raids, and then loudly proclaiming their supposed Indian identities in suspiciously good English. All of it to justify the retaliatory raids against the real Indians that would follow. The Lipanes actually tried for many years to protest these attacks and the accompanying theft of their property using the Texian court system. But by 1843, they'd given up. A comprehensive Indian bill in 1843 also enshrined into Texas' statute the policy that Flaco and Juan and Ramon Castro had been sensing for some time. First, there was no longer any special designation for the Lipanes as quote-unquote friendly Indians. Second, it prohibited all Texas Indians from crossing an ill-defined line of white settlement, effectively displacing the Lipanes from land where they had coexisted with European settlers for centuries. It was enough to make an old Lipan long for the days of Spanish rule. Because behind the Spanish forked-tongue diplomacy was at least a recognition that the Lipanes were the de facto owners of the state. This is why Spanish and Mexican governments had only ever patented out 15% or so of the lands that they claimed in Texas, because the other 85% were clearly owned and occupied by peoples like the Lipanes. Behind Texian policies, however, was some unquestioned idea that Even the 85% now belonged to as yet to come Anglo settlers, and that the Lipanes would only be begrudgingly allowed to occupy those lands for so long as it took for these new settlers to get here. But most painfully of all, the 1843 Comprehensive Texas Indian Bill prohibited any trade in horses between white settlers and Lipanes. Whether deliberate or not, it threatened to drive the Lipanes into immediate poverty. The entire Lippon economy, the entire Lippon lifeway, had been built around the horse for two centuries by this point. To deny them the right to trade horses was like denying them their identity. The horse had been made for them. The horse in Texas was theirs by right. And if you think that's a presumptuous claim, as some Texians did, I'll point out to you that it's really not any more presumptuous than the so-called doctrine of discovery, under which these newcomers to Texas were claiming title Clearly, native lands. But the doctrine of discovery, arbitrarily, said that only Europeans could hold title to land. Native Americans living on their own lands could only ever have a limited, quote, right to occupancy, end quote. But as the Lipanes had discovered, most Texas settlers they encountered weren't quoting legal doctrines and they weren't even actually trying to follow any chain of title back to some first European discovery. Most settlers' claim to their land came from the obligations that they owed on it to other people. Land speculation was, and perhaps still is, the great American path to riches. Large grants of Texas land, be they under Mexican colonization laws or Republic of Texas headright grants, were often surveyed, patented, and then quickly flipped to secondary buyers. These buyers then borrowed as much as they could from the government, from banks, from railroads, or from the sellers themselves, and more than anything, it was this obligation to pay the note that seemed to authorize all manner of violence in defense of that manufactured claim to the land. The irony of this situation, from the Lipanes' point of view, was that the entire system exculpated nearly everyone along the chain from moral guilt, except for the Indian who had been using the land first, and whose ongoing attempts to access the land was suddenly considered trespassing. It was an odd thing from the Lipan perspective, too, that they couldn't even figure out who to turn to to complain about this. No Texians seemed to have the authority to halt the taking of their land or the cutting off of their horse trade or the negotiation of any kind of peace. And yet each settler was authorized, it seemed, to enforce all of it with violence. Amidst this confusion, the Lipanes began spending more and more time along the Mexican-controlled Rio Grande or in northern Coahuila. But Mexico wasn't an entirely comfortable place at this time either. As we've alluded to, the Mexican army officer class retained the prejudices of the old Spanish royalist administrators against the Apaches, and even Mexican Federalists didn't look particularly fondly on Indios Barbaros like the Lipanes. They were an embarrassment to Mexican officials focused on modernizing their country's image. And Lipanes' migratory patterns didn't work in any country built around privately owned land and which granted the owner of that land a near total right of exclusion to keep any and all others out. The political troubles were also compounded by the collapse of buffalo populations in Texas. This was due primarily to increased hunting pressure, but it was also attributable to the ending of the so-called Little Ice Age that had brought the buffalo and the Proto-Plains Apaches down into Texas in the first place. And perversely, the same warmer temperatures that were driving away the buffalo were improving the conditions for the cultivation of Anglo-Texians' cotton, which was making Texians wealthy and increasingly covetous of the river valleys and well-watered lands throughout the state for the expansion of King Cotton, the same lands most prized by Lipanes and Comanches for their horse herds. Anglo-Texians weren't unaware of this situation, and President Houston decided to make one last push for peace with all of the natives of the state. In October 1844, President Houston's commissioners convened a meeting with 10 Texas tribes on Tewakana Creek, just south of modern-day Waco, Texas. They included the Comanches, the Waco, the Tawakoni, other Catawans, and even immigrant Indians like the Cherokee, Delaware, and Shawnee, and, of course, the Lipan Apaches. The Lipanes were represented at the council by Captain Ramon Castro son of the late Cuelgas de Castro, and a few other male captains. There's no more capitanas or women peace commissioners in the records going forward. Quote, The tomahawk shall be buried, end quote. The ensuing treaty of peace, friendship, and commerce opened, recalling the Spanish Lipan peace of almost exactly 100 years before. Like the 1749 ceremony, this one too featured an enormous barbecue, though the differences in how the beef was prepared hinted at the cultural changes in the interim. Instead of slow-cooked cuts over a fire with chiles and tortillas, this one featured 200 pounds of boiled beef and cornbread. The cultural changes were also apparent in the terms offered Native Texans in the 1844 Tehuacana Creek Treaty. Whereas the 1749 Spanish Treaty had incorporation of the Natives as its goal, via weddings and shared religious ceremonies, the Texian Treaty of Tehuacana Creek focused on defining a sacrosanct line of white settlement, dividing Native and Anglo worlds. Under the terms of the treaty, Natives weren't technically giving up their claims to lands behind, but they would only be authorized to occupy them for so long as they were unoccupied by Anglo-Texian settlers, which was an increasingly rare case. In exchange, the Texian commissioners offered to make sure that no quote-unquote bad men crossed the line into Indian territory but not really, because even if such bad men did cross, the Indians also had to promise not to harm them. The Lipanes, like the other natives, accepted the terms of this treaty, and indicated themselves, quote, as perfectly willing to be governed by the instructions of the government in every respect. End quote. It was a posture that they had often adopted toward these kinds of treaties, even when they were being dictated at them, trusting in their ability as alliance makers to smooth over some of the harsher provisions of the document in the future. And there was still, in 1844, at least some vestigial memory amongst Texas officials of Lippon friendship. And so in practice, they were given, quote, special privileges as useful allies and were allowed to remain in their southern homeland, end quote. It was a measure of grace made easier by the fact that the Republic of Texas government never really had control of those southern homelands, and by the fact that the ever-resourceful, ever-alliance-making Lipanes had once again found a way to be of use to their settler neighbors, even when their settler neighbors didn't much seem to want to like them. For its entire existence, the Republic of Texas was acutely vulnerable to attacks from Mexico, as the 1842 invasions and occupations of San Antonio had shown. And Texians couldn't really counterattack without risking retaliation, And frankly, even the few times they had tried to probe inside of Mexico, it hadn't gone very well for them. From the failed Matamoros expedition at the start of the Texas Revolution, to the Mier expedition, to the disastrous Santa Fe campaign, Mexico remained pretty secure in its ability to hold off Texian incursions while continuing to launch raids into the fragile young republic. But the Lipanes could play both sides of the border in a way that no one else really could. And even though Anglo-Texians openly coveted Lipan lands in Texas, the Lipanes realized that the Texians would still shelter them from Mexican authorities. And so the Lipanes became proxies for a sort of Texian campaign to destabilize the northern Mexican border. In 1844 alone, 400 Lipanes hit four of the Rio Grande Bias, killing 83, taking 50 captives, and plenty more livestock. From 1840 to 1850, Lipanes stole something like 3,300 head of cattle from Mexican ranchers and sold them to Texians at steep discounts and without Texians having to risk retaliation for those raids. Because even as Mexican officials suspected formal or informal Texian support for these Lipan raids, the Texians still had plausible deniability. The raids had the further advantage of aggravating northern Mexicans' grievances against the central Mexican government in promoting separatist movements such as that of the Republic of the Rio Grande, which also further reduced the threat of reconquest from Mexico. But a confusing piece of news reached the Lipanes in March of 1846. The Republic of Texas, they were told, was now apparently a part of the United States. You can imagine the Lipanes' confusion throughout this entire period. For all that settler societies complained about their inability to make a permanent peace with the Lipanes because of the dispersed nature of Lipan political authority, Lipanes could level a pretty similar complaint against the frequent changes in sovereignty that they'd been subjected to over the previous generation, from Spanish to Mexican to Texian to United States. So who are they supposed to be negotiating with now? Whose promises were they supposed to be believing when the Spanish governor of Texas had had no authority over the Spanish governor of New Mexico, who had had nothing to do with the independent Mexican government and then the Anglo-Texian government, and there were German-speaking immigrants around now too, but it was the United States government located a continent away that they were supposed to be talking to? The situation was actually much worse for the Lipanes than Flaco or Juan or Ramon Castro could have initially appreciated. Because of the unique terms of Texas's annexation, the federal government didn't actually own any land in Texas. The state of Texas retained control of all of its public lands, which created a really peculiar situation. Since Texas controlled all the land in the state, and since Texas held that Indians were incapable of holding title to any of their own lands, according to the Texas legislature, quote, we recognize no right in the government of the United States to make any treaty of limits within the said Indian tribes without the consent of the government of this state, end quote. And the U.S. Commissioner of Indian Affairs more or less agreed with the Texas legislature's interpretation, quote, Texas, on coming into the Union, retained control and jurisdiction over all her public domain so that none of the laws or regulations of our Indian system are in force in her limits, end quote. The Lipan Apaches were now required to deal with the United States government, which had no authority to deal with them by its own admission. And more troublingly, the fact that the Lipanes were on Texas rather than federal lands meant that the federal non-intercourse laws didn't apply to Texans. These were the laws that prohibited U.S. citizens from entering federal lands occupied by Indians without a passport, and which, however imperfect, promoted some separation and some form of peace on the rest of the American frontier by criminalizing trespass onto Indian lands. With Texas's annexation to the United States, however, the line of white settlement had just become a bright red line enforced by the U.S. Army, which meant that even the Lipanes, long settled in areas behind this line of settlement, would now be prevented from crossing that line by the U.S. Army, a line that Anglo-Texans, however, would still be allowed to cross with impunity, comforted by the knowledge that the line moved with them and that Indians couldn't retaliate against them, cross it. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard González, Margo Moreno, and Gary Pérez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina González Dávila, Nancy McGown Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, Go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.